Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. And welcome back to the Credit Sites podcast. My name is Winnie Caesar. I'm the global head of strategy here for Credit Sites. And today I'm delighted to be joined by a guest from across the pond. We have Andy Belton. He's our head of European basics and the senior analyst covering building materials for the US. He's based in our London office, and I am delighted to chat with him today. Thank you so much for being here, Andy. Thanks, Winnie. Always a pleasure to chat to strategy. Uh, I'm sure it is. All right, let's kick it off with our opener question. This is a fun icebreaker. I've loved hearing what all of our analysts have had to say. If you could have a sneak peek at any piece of economic, credit market, or sector-specific data for this year, what would it be and why? I'm guessing that most of my sector peers will have plumped for, say, macro-related data. And look, I love to take a contrarian view, but that wouldn't be the right call in this case, to be honest. Let's remember that building materials is essentially very much a macro-driven space. And we need to remember that the prime driver of demand for building materials is construction activity. Whether I'm talking about, say, aggregates, which is driven by new road building or maintaining roads, or cement, which is used heavily in, say, residential housing, and also it's used as the base material for concrete. And of course, concrete is used pretty much across the whole construction value chain, whether it be commercial office building or big bridges and roads. So my answer to you is essentially that I'd love to see how 2023 is going to turn out in terms of construction trends. And I think I would probably drill down specifically into single family new home construction. And also, I'd love to look at how the non-resi sector is actually turning out. If we think about current expectations for this year, They're slightly downbeat or very downbeat, I should say, for the home building space. We're talking about an 8% expected decline in residential construction forecast for this year. Although actually counterintuitively, the year hasn't started that badly, according to my home building analyst colleague, Nate Fenger. Of course, the wild card is what happens in the remainder of this year to the banking sector and the knock-on impact this might have on consumer confidence. And obviously, therefore, in turn, both housing demand in new houses, but also for RMI. And of course, the recovery in non-residential at the moment remains very much nascent. Current expectations are for just under one percentage point of recovery in non-resi construction. That comes after the 7% decline that we saw in 2021 and the 5% decline that we saw last year. So it remains to be seen, as far as I'm concerned, whether the recent banking turbulence will have a massive negative effect on funding conditions for commercial real estate. I think where I'm slightly less curious is on trends in, say, the public infrastructure spending sector. Generally, sector commentators are split on whether or not we're going to get a significant kicker from the recent infrastructure bills like the IIJA. 
Some are more bullish and expect the benefits to come through pretty much from the next quarter, April onwards. Others, including myself and the Portland Cement Association, are a little bit more, I would say, realistic and expect the benefits to be really rather late coming and also modest in the amount in 2023. I think where we all agree, though, is that this year is not going to be vintage for public construction and highway spending in particular. But at the end of the day, it's the only sector that's going to see any kind of growth. So I think generally there isn't a great deal of uncertainty about what's going to happen in public construction in 2023. And of course, in this space, all eyes are on next year when we have presidential elections. Oh, my gosh. Don't remind me. I'm not I'm not ready for more political consternation. We also have the U.S. debt ceiling to debate in the summer months of this year, which I'm sure is going to be interesting. Yeah, I think that the macro data is wildly useful for your sector. And it's also something that we're watching quite closely because the construction data feeds into whether the NBER actually declares a period a recession. So while the labor market is quite important, also the construction spending side of things is ultimately key. So, you know, you just highlighted what you would like to know. As we're looking for that macro data on construction, how are you recommending investors position in building products for this year? And why are you positioned that way? So we have a market perform recommendation on U.S. building materials for 23. And I think this is a mixture of a fundamental and a technical call. I think I've mentioned already in the previous question, question, 23 is going to see a lower level of construction activity as the housing market falls back and non-resi space generally crawls back into the black after the COVID and the work from home declines that we saw in 21-22. We do expect some growth in public construction, although the sector is really what I would call in first gear at the moment, ahead of what we expect to be swiftly moving through the gears next year when the IIJA benefits kick in more strongly. In fundamental terms, we see this translating into an extension of pretty much the same trends that we saw last year. We see product volume still in retreat, but we see very much positive product pricing. The aggregate suppliers, for example, are projecting shipments to drop by a low to mid single digit quantum this year. At the same time, average selling prices continue to rise by as much as a double digits factor. So you're getting a natural revenue growth there. What's less clear, of course, is the pace of inflation. And this is going to do a great deal to determine how much of an inflation dilution impact there is on sector margins in 23. Now, the US has not seen the 40 to 60% hike in energy costs that Europe has suffered since the wake of the Russia and Ukraine war last year. But nonetheless, costs do remain under pressure. And we expect margin pressure to continue at least for the first half of this year. Having said all that, sector balance sheets, they're in pretty good shape despite a healthy degree of attention to shareholder value. We've seen sector leverage reduce from about two times average that was in place before COVID in 2019 to the current 1.3 times level. And with M&A activity that was done in 2022, expected to really start to generate EBITDA growth this year, we expect a further deleveraging impact to about one times on average in the space in 23. So we see this mix of macro and operating headwinds offset by strong cash flow generation and solid balance sheets. And at the same time, we see that being matched by a spread profile that's round about 10 basis points wide to the index. When I talk to clients about the space, I think it's fair to say that many 
PMs who like the odd single name, but they really struggle to allocate funds to the sector, given the fact that you've got tight spreads when you calibrate by the sector's inherent cyclicality. And many accounts remain bears on the fundamental outlook in building materials, which stops them getting any kind of aggressive opportunities and seeking out investments in the secondary market. Although, of course, I think it's fair to say that any new deals in the primary market tend to rush out the door. So I think in overall terms, I would need to see either a wider spread gap to the index or a little bit more of a benign construction trajectory in macro terms in order to go outperform on the space. If I'm honest, I would probably need more of the former. So you just mentioned the primary market with kind of new deals rushing out the door. What are you expecting for new issue activity this year? How should investors be thinking about deals coming to market? I think, to be honest, we're somewhat cautious on expectations for issuance in building materials in 23. We don't really see a great deal of scope for refinancing activity. The sector debt maturity curve is pretty well skewed to the longer end, and we only see a small amount of actual debt, non-dollar debt, falling due this year, and round about $1 billion falling due in 24. In single-name terms, both uh, Masco and Owens Corning have maturities next year, but they're not until July and December, so we don't really see a major push to issue proactively this year in order to refinance those. We do see some bank lines that might need renewing during the course of this year, but overall we view building materials as not really a big candidate for refi-driven new issuance. And in fact, we'd say it's not really a massive candidate for new paper overall. If we think about M&A activity, which is typically a driver of new issuance, we expect acquisitions to be more add-on than transformational in 23. We would say that CRH and Wholesim are the most aggressive in terms of M&A in the space. There is the possibility that they might like to issue US dollar paper to fund any larger deals. But at the end of the day, both of them are focusing really more on incremental transactions at the moment. Now, CRH does retain a very strong core of US dollar debt. It's about $4.5 billion in total. That does reflect the fact it's really very heavily exposed to North American building materials. And we wouldn't surprise to see a preponderance of US deals in their M&A profile this year. But at the same time, CRH tends to avoid big deals. They're more expensive in multiple terms. And at the same time, the credit is inherently cautious from a balance sheet perspective. Now, outside of M&A, there is the possibility for the odd sustainability linked bond. And this remains a slight possibility in the US, although we have to remember that the US is very much behind Europe in terms of ESG type financing sustainability bonds or green bonds. We do see a small possibility of debt raising to fund buybacks, and we don't really see this as a major risk for the bill, for the sector in 23. Actually, thus far this year, we haven't seen hardly any issuance. The one deal of note was a very short-dated piece of paper from Vulcan Materials, which was about $550 million. It was a three non-call one deal. It was two times oversubscribed, and it did come in 20 bips from IPT to final pricing, which was about 150 over the over the treasury curve. But to be honest, this is very much a toe in the water rather than a full-scale dive in. So I think we'd say overall that we don't expect new supply to be much of an issue in building materials this year. 
That's super helpful. I think that's very in line with our expectation really across the board with new issue supply, not necessarily serving as much of an overhang in terms of spreads and valuations this year. There's just less to do in the debt capital markets. For the most part, companies have put their maturities in a pretty good shape, balance sheets. You know, there's a focus on maintaining strong balance sheets, given all the moving pieces with rate hikes and eroding mix for a lot of different sectors. So it's helpful to have that context on the building product side. So let's talk about the risks here and things that keep you up at night when you're thinking about your sector and recommendation. With the market perform, you know, we're not really recommending we reach for risk. It's a little bit more neutral, which might feel a bit counterintuitive given that there are some headwinds on the construction side, on the industrial side of the economy. So as we're thinking about a market perform recommendation in a sector that does have some headwinds, you know, perhaps not some overhang from valuations related to primary supply expectations, but shifting industrial and and construction and manufacturing economic data, what keeps you up at night? What are the risks that we need to be considering in building products this year? That's a good question, Winnie. And to answer it, I'm going to use a quote from the 1992 presidential election. There was a guy called James Carville, who was Bill Clinton's chief strategist and helped him to defeat George Bush. And Carville was trying to drive home the message that Bush was out of touch with the needs of everyday Americans. And he came up with the the phrase, it's the economy, stupid. Now, I'm not going to sit here and use the word stupid in talking to Credit Sites Head of Global Strategy, but I will focus on the first three words of that phrase, it's the economy. I've already outlined current expectations for construction, but what I do worry about is the impact from the fallout of the banking crisis and the impact it might have on consumer sentiment and in turn housing demand. I've also mentioned before trends in non-residential construction. I also worry about what may happen to the non-residential sector in 23. Despite the slightly sanguine outlook that was recently published by the PCA, leading indicators remain very much on soggy ground. The Architectural Billings Index, which is a very important indicator of non-residential activity on a 12-month forward-looking basis, remains below the 50 watermark. And this essentially confirms that architects' billings are still in retreat and have been so now for the past six months. So as well as the macro situation, I also worry about the weather, which of course is a very English obsession. Weather is very much a major influence on building activity, and every major storm and hurricane tends to have a significant impact on demand for building materials. So just as an example, Hurricane Ian, which had a significant impact on building activity in Florida in the fall of last year. And remember, this is a state that is in the top 10 for Vulcan materials and is similarly important for Martin Marietta. That is super helpful. I would not have considered the weather, but it is definitely something that is wildly relevant to so many parts of the outlook for the credit markets and the economy for sure. And putting that granularity around kind of exposure to hurricane risk, it's something that's also in the insurance sector and in the utility sector. So I really enjoyed how you kind of tied that in as as a more macro risk and kind of a key thing that, that you consider So let's talk about recommendations. You've highlighted a few companies already. What are you thinking in terms of top picks, top pans? Are there any good carry trades in building products? How should investors be considering portfolio allocation in your sector? 
In single name terms, I think our preference basically reflects the trends in construction activity I mentioned earlier. So we tend to like the names that are more exposed to infrastructure, names like Vulcan Materials and Martin Marietta, over the more home building suppliers like Owens Corning, Masco and Mohawk. Of course, we are aware that there is a presidential election next year. And in the wake of that, typically infrastructure projects tend to be delayed in the, in the election year itself, i.e. 24, as Department of Transportation officials worry about awarding multi-year contracts in a situation where you don't know the political affiliation of the president or even the makeup of both houses. So there is always a little bit of a kind of disintermediation impact in an election year. Offsetting that, though, is the fact that next year we'll see a much bigger kick from the IIJA, and this will still leave public construction not only well ahead of where it is now, but well ahead of where we expect it to finish in 2023. And in the meantime, the heavy side names like Martin and Vulcan are really guiding for healthy uplifts in profitability on higher product prices. So overall, we definitely retain our preference for these names ahead of the more home building exposed names. However, we do see most value within the space in the Euro Yankee bond issuers like CRH and Holcim. These are financially stronger. They're much more diversified. And remember, they do actually make up 30% of the US building products index. So they are very significant in sector terms. Our top pick is CRH. It's an Irish domiciled credit that's increasingly being led by US. It has a $4.5 billion debt stack. And actually, it's seeking to move its primary listing to the New York Stock Exchange to reflect the fact that it now generates about three quarters of its EBITDA from North America. CRH is rated high triple B, and it remains our flight to quality credit in building materials. It's the kind of name that we don't think will cause any sector analyst or portfolio managers to lose sleep. And we think that's an increasingly valuable trait in a market that's been volatile since the advent of the recent US and European banking issues. Our top pan, on the other hand, is Masco. This is a producer of paints and bathroom products, and it's a much weaker credit in our view than it was in the past when it had a much more diversified business portfolio that included windows and doors, cabinets, and a number of other sectors. I've mentioned our pre fundamental preference for the heavy side names, and Masco is the best vehicle to express that preference for heavy side at the expense of the home building suppliers like Masco itself. Now, from an operational standpoint, Masco continues to be materially outperformed by its peer, Owens Corning. That's the name that we have a market perform on. And we expect this performance gap to continue into 23. Now, with spread levels that are roughly very similar, it's a fundamental preference for Owens Corning that drives the rec difference between the two credits. And the reason why we like Owens Corning, it's more diverse from a business footprint perspective. It has a proven ability to manage cost inflation primarily through product pricing. It has a structurally superior product profit margin. It has lower net leverage, and it's being a lot more conservative on capital allocation. So that's our pick and pan. In terms of carry, we'd probably point to Holcim. It's a Swiss cement group with an increasing presence in the US, particularly focusing on the flat roofing market, which is very repair and remodeling focused. So therefore, that does tend to be a little bit more stable than new home construction. Holcim has a solid credit profile, good business profile, strong balance sheet, recently strengthened by the fact it's raked in about 7 billion US dollars from divestments in much more volatile places like Brazil and India. And it has a very strong war chest for what is quite an active M&A activity as it builds up its roofing solutions business. 
Now, governance risk has been a very present in Wholesim's profile in the past. They did, however, settle a 780 million case with the Department of Justice during the course of 2022, which we think could act as a useful precedent with an ongoing case in, in France. So overall, I think Wholesim, because it trades on the wide side in euros and actually even more, even wider in dollars, we think it's a compelling trade from a spread perspective. Some great trade ideas, good picks, good pans. I do notice that most of your constructive constructive views are these non-US based companies. What am I supposed to read into that, Andy? Do you have a non-US bias here? <laughs> it's an interesting issue, Winnie, and it reflects the fact that Building materials is one of those weird sectors where actually the U.S. doesn't dominate. So interestingly, if you take the top 10 cement producers in the United States, there's only one of them, Eagle Materials, is actually U.S. domiciled. All of the others are either European, like CRH, like Wholesim, like Heidelberg Cement, or we have a couple of Mexicans. There's a wonderful Mexican credit called Grupo Cementos de Chihuahua. And there's also, of course, Semex, which is an incredibly well-followed credit in the dollar markets. So it just so happens that a lot of Europeans have established very strong U.S. footprints. And let's remember that for names like CRH and Wholesim, actually the U.S. accounts for somewhere between a third and three quarters of their EBITDA. And one other aspect I'd point to in building materials, it's not really a sector where you see massive import and export flows. So if you want to have an established presence in the US, you want to tap the infrastructure programs that I mentioned earlier, you've really got to buy a local operator because what you're not going to be doing is you're not going to be exporting very, very heavy clinker from Southeast Asia or from Europe across the Atlantic or the Pacific and into the West Coast of the US. It just doesn't work that way. So the only real way that you get presence into the States is either to be in the States or, for example, to be in Mexico, where you can just transfer that clinker across the Gulf of Mexico and into Texas. That is super interesting and very helpful. And if you need someone to come take a due diligence trip to check out Semex with you, we can go drink some margaritas, take a little tour of the facilities. How's that sound? I, I've been trying to convince Semex to have their investor days in Mexico for many years. Unfortunately, they tend to hold them either in London, which is never... Uh never good fun. Or occasionally I get to come across to the US in, in New York. And that's always great, great entertainment. Oh, okay, well, next time in New York, I'll buy you a margarita and we can just pretend. So let's wrap it up with our words of wisdom from the Credit Sites Analyst team. If you had any words of advice that you could give to your management teams beyond moving Semex Investor Day to a beach in Mexico somewhere, what would you tell them? I think I'd probably frame my advice in two ways. And firstly, I'd reiterate that the sector should not forget the lessons of 0708. Now, clearly, expectations at the moment are not for a repeat of those dark days. I think the best, worst case scenario we see is a soft recession, as opposed to the kind of chaos that we saw in 0708. Nonetheless, I think the recent volatility in the banking sector has highlighted the inherent volatility that lies just below the surface in the credit markets. I've been at credit sites now for 16 years, and I watched the building materials sector almost collapse under the weight of a global financial crisis-induced demand collapse. It was about 60% in some markets, but also a debt stack that was very much bloated after a big bout of debt-funded M&A. And this M&A activity, interestingly, had been the form of a number of highly leveraged mega deals that were funded extensively by short-term bank bridges. 
And these, in turn, these bank bridges, which obviously had been expected to be taken out through capital markets activity, either equity or debt, they did have quite tough covenant bases that A, became stretched, and then B, actually broke under the weight of the demand destruction. So actually, at that point, average leverage in the space was about five times, and that's just unsustainable for any kind of investment-grade sector. And at that point, the sector was flirting with a number of large-scale bankruptcies. But luckily, the banking sector just about held its nerve and rolled over and refinanced a big part of that debt stack. Now, sector balance sheets are much stronger nowadays, but I would remind CFOs to continue with the current trend of effectively churning their business portfolios, selling some businesses that they don't want to be involved in anymore at high multiples and reinvesting those at lower multiples in order to secure their strategic objectives rather than just trying to chase scale. So that's the first lesson. The second lesson, I'd say, is that whilst the US market is not really as myopically focused on ESG as we are here in Europe, I would urge the management teams to plan for the future and ensure that they're folding sustainability into their strategic pillars. We are increasingly hearing from PMs and sector analysts that the E part of ESG risk is coming much more heavily into focus than it has been in the past. Now, I don't think we're yet at the stage in the US as we have been in Europe. For example, I'll use one example that I had from some accounts that I met last year, where one PM I met with opened up their laptop at the start of the meeting and effectively refused to discuss any single names that had not been approved on his ESG screener list. Obviously, that is, you know, we're not that situation in the US, but sustainability is increasing in importance. And this is a sector where there isn't really a massive amount of spread dispersion. So any kind of differential between one credit and another is going to drive investor sentiment and therefore value. So overall, I would say management teams should start now to prepare for more ESG-related questioning, whether it be in earnings calls or in investor days. Great words of advice and wisdom. Bigger is not necessarily better when it comes to building products and the strategic missions of these companies. And then focus on the future. ESG, despite, you know, a little bit of, I think, a refocus away from ESG this year, given all the the market volatility, it is the reality of the future. And I think that companies that can be adaptive and first movers, I think will fare pretty well. Thank you so much, Andy, for joining me today. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Winnie. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.